0: Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry.
1: In this episode, Julie and I talk with the beloved beverage industry giants, the king of cocktails, Dale DeGroff, and the modern mixologist, Tony Abaganum. They share with us their beverage industry journeys, We learn all about Dale's new edition of his book, The Craft of the Cocktail, Everything You Need to Know to Be a Master Bartender. Guys, it also includes 500 recipes. Wow. Tony's Helen David Relief Fund that raises money and awareness for bartenders affected by breast cancer. We also talk about Tony's books, Vodka Distilled and The Modern Mixologist*. They share so many amazing personal stories and the work that they did to usher in the second golden age of the cocktail. Now, I've known both Dale and Tony for over 20 years, and I can tell you for certain that it is because of their hard work, passion, and drive that we as an industry have layers upon layers of opportunities. And these opportunities just did not exist before the work that they put in. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome you to this very special episode of Served Up. Grab a cocktail and enjoy the show. Cheers. Dale and Tony, welcome to the show. Julie and I are beyond excited to have you on this episode today.
2: We are, too. I'm, I know I am anyway. I can't speak for Tony.
3: <laughs> uh, it's always a pleasure uh, to spend some time with some of my favorite people.
2: Yeah, I, I second the motion.
1: Ah, uh, Well, we're we're truly um, honored to have you on the show. And, you know, you both come with such um, wisdom about the beverage industry. And you've made the biggest impact out of two individuals that I know on our culture And on the cocktails that we serve, the way that we're educated, and it really all does um, return back to the two of you. And so, you know, we would love to know how you began. You know, where did your journey start in the beverage community? And I would love for each of you to answer.
3: Well, um, I grew up in the bar business. As you know, my cousin, Helen David, opened the Brass Rail Bar in Port Huron, Michigan in 1937, So uh, my earliest years, I can remember my father taking me into the bar and my uncle Charlie behind the bar and stocking the coolers for him and putting the empty beer bottles down in the basement, uh, having a Shirley Temple or I guess a Roy Rogers for a guy uh, and a bag of chips and just kind of sitting and looking at my uncle in his starch white shirt behind that beautiful Bar and the mirrors, and the goddess of wisdom and the goddess of knowledge. And so I guess I was smitten with the bar industry uh, at a very early age. But uh, when I came of age, it took my father persuading Helen to make me a bartender. This was 1980. And if we look at kind of the culture of the bar in 1980, it really wasn't um, that profession to aspire to as a career it seemed like it was more of that part-time job while you're finishing school or working on your acting career. Uh, Helen actually wanted to send me to culinary school to become a chef. Uh, She thought being a chef was a little bit more of a a profession again at that time to aspire to but finally she gave in and uh, my dad persuaded her to he said I think Tony will make a good bartender so she was the first person to put a cocktail shaker in my hand. And back then, and Dale, you probably recall, you know, when someone asked you, so what do you do for a living? And you said, oh, I'm a bartender. And you'd be all excited and animated. And the next question would be, well, what do you want to do? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I'm having a pretty good time being a bartender. Am I supposed to want to do something else? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so that was my start. Yeah. And uh, yeah, kind of like Al Pacino, I listened to everyone else and Thought, well, maybe I am supposed to do something else, but I kept trying to get out and they kept dragging me back in. And, uh, fortunately one day I happened to be in New York city, working on a theatrical career, sitting at the bar at the rainbow room and the light bulb went off and watching Dale and do his thing and his love and pro- for the profession and art of hospitality. And I said, you know, Tony, I think you should just become the best bartender you can become. And, uh, That was when I made that conscious decision uh, to really apply myself as a professional bartender. And the whole world kind of changed at that point for me. And uh, it's funny when you uh, uh, really commit to something you love, it's not like going to work anymore. It's, um, you know, just doing what you love doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember the first time that I met you, Tony, and was at the Bellagio when it opened and you had some sort of like a pep rally, I'll call it for better terms um, for the whole staff. <laughs> and you're up on the stage and dropping your knowledge and getting very, very, very inspired. And I remember leaning over to Diane Sylvie, who is still bartends, um, you know, today at the Bellagio. And I leaned yeah. over and I said, Diane, I want to be just like this guy <laughs> on the stage. <laughs> so I'll never forget that moment. And <laughs> And Dale, um, same goes for you. I remember the first time that I met you was also at the Bellagio and we had a cocktail competition and the first edition of your book, Craft of the Cocktail, had been released. And and we were all given a copy, an autographed copy from you as a prize for competing. And this was what? This was 20 years ago. And so I would really (laughs) love to hear your story um, as well, because you certainly um, inspired us.
2: Well, I, I'm sitting here about a three-minute walk from the state line into Rhode Island and about a 12-minute walk from my mom's house, which is why one of the reasons why Jill and I are here in this new house and sold our home in New York. And I'm also about a, a five-minute walk from the place where I had my first exposure to alcoholic beverages, Dick's Package Store. My Uncle Dick was in the liquor business, and I stocked the shelves. And um, it was somewhat of an education. And my next real run-in with alcoholic beverages, my dad was a Navy officer and we, his last tour of duty was, um, well, it was actually in in Kenitra, Morocco, but we got tossed out of Morocco by King Hassan II when he had a little bit of a dust up with President Kennedy. And we ended up in Southern Spain at a place called Puerto de Santa Maria. And because we were sort of a last minute addition, we didn't have any room to have housing on the base for the other officers. We- which turned out to be a really good thing because I lived in town. I lived in one of the towns of the Sherry Triangle, Puerto de Santa Maria. And uh, I was a teenager and way too young to drink in the United States, but managed to tie one on in Hedez, Spain. (laughs) Uh, And that was my first exposure to actually drinking alcohol. And it was rum and cokes with uh, Bacardi when Bacardi was still made in Cuba because this was in the early 60s when Franco was still uh, in power in Spain. My next real exposure, of course, was coming to New York. I mean, I was at university <clears throat> studying theatrical arts like Tony. And we, set to, we, we uh, entered a play into the Yale Drama Festival and the festival was, was um, uh, covered by the New Yorker magazine critic, Brendan Gill, a, a stately old gentleman at the time who went back to New York and wrote up our play our little play is the best thing in the festival. I went right back to the university in the middle of my junior year on the Dean's list, packed my bags and moved into the Sloan house YMCA on 34th street. Sure. that I was going to be on Broadway boards in no time. Well, I was exactly right because at no time have I ever been on a Broadway stage. <laughs> I, uh, I found out in about 30 seconds, the only place where you wanted to be in New York was in the bars. I mean, uh, right in my neighborhood there, 34th and, and 8th Avenue. There were a number of bars up and down the avenue and, you know, very nicely placed because they had these place called uh, Criolos, Chinos y Latinos, where you could get dinner for about a dollar $1.50. And, uh, and then the steam plate Irish bars where you could get dinner for about $2. That was the premium plate. And you could get a beer for 50 cents. So I spent a lot of time in those kinds of bars. But the bars really called to me. I mean, while I was in New York, I ended up, working in restaurants, first as a dishwasher, then as a waiter, and then eventually as a bartender in a uh, in a really nice place. My first job, well, actually, my first job was in Gracie Mansion because I was a waiter in Charlie O's, which had been a Joe Baum restaurant, but had been purchased by a guy named Peter Ashkenazi, a terrible restaurateur, but his daddy was really rich because he was in the garment industry, and he Gave a lot of money to politics, and so Mayor Beam was the mayor. And so his son's restaurant got to do all the catering up at Gracie Mansion. I finished the gig at uh, <clears throat> at the uh, restaurant lunch, and the frantic manager coming through the through the uh, uh, restaurant as we were cleaning our tables, saying, "I need a bartender. I need them now. You know who are you which one do you guys can tend bar? See the re- the real bartenders, Pat and Mike, Irishmen. You know, brilliant guys, wonderful." Uh, had no interest in loading a truck, unloading it, loading it again and unloading it again, you know, to go up there. They had their perfectly good jobs behind the bar and they were union. They didn't have to do anything they didn't want to do. So I said, I'm a bartender. And I ran up to the bar <laughs> to Mike and I said, Mike. And I gave him an index card. I said, please write down 10 of the most popular cocktails for me because I'm going to Gracie Mansion. You know, he said, hey, Dale, you're not going to need it. You're going to have to do tab and Chardonnay and, 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 Cocktails and rocks, vodka and rocks, a few highballs. Don't worry about it. I said, "Please, Mike, please do it for me." Mm-hmm. Well, he was exactly right. I got up there. We had a little table, and I did have right? nothing more, nothing complicated. But standing behind that little bar, as Mayor Beam gave the keys of the city to Rupert Murdoch, and there was lots of folks around who were pretty important. You know, I felt kind of important, and I felt well. I don't know how Muhammad Ali felt the first time he stepped in the ring. I thought, "Wow, this is pretty cool." <laughs> you know. <laughs> To to finish this story and and, and get back to our, 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 uh, our, our timeline, many, many years later, after my Rainbow Room days were over, and I was just bouncing around promoting my book and trying to obviously figure out ways to make money, a friend of mine in the catering business who got high-end parties called up and said, Dale, I need you to do a party for me. It's going to be for Rupert Murdoch and it's going to be in his duplex apartment and, and his young Japanese wife is going to throw it for him and it's a surprise and he's got to make up drinks that are named after his ranch and stuff like that. I said, cool, I'm in. I'm in. So I got up there and one of the surprises was over Murdoch comes up to the party and says, oh, well, you're the hot shit cocktail guy, eh? I said, well, actually, Mr. Murdoch, our fortunes have risen together in this town. <laughs> 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 I pulled him the <laughs> about tending bar, the you know, city—a uh, story that I told to Giuliani's wife because she had a TV show on uh, on Food Food Channel, which I used to be on once in a while. And I told her that story. She said, "Ah." When I told her, I gave the they gave him the keys of the city. She looked at me. and She said, "And he used him, didn't he?" <laughs> anyway, that's my my saga. Uh, and I, I finally, obviously, as you all know. Out in l a decided that with two children and my wife in tow, with a really good job waiting for me in New York with the famous legendary Joe Baum, it was time to uh, hang up my tap shoes <laughs> 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 get to work behind the bar permanently, and I'm glad I did you know
1: <laughs> The things that you both must have seen and heard, I'm sure, I hope that one day that you both release a tell-all book. (laughs) The recipes are great. (laughs) I love both of your, I love all your books, but boy, a tell-all book would be really fun.
2: I got lots of stories in my books and the new one too. Yeah. Anecdotes and customers So you know.
1: Absolutely. Um, So can you tell us you know, about the co- about the cocktail culture, I think a lot of folks are really curious, you know, where did it start? Take us back to the beginning. You mean me? Well, I mean, as a was, whole. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe together. Tell us that story. Where did we are start you, off and like when where we are today? Thomas
2: wrote that book way back in 1862. It actually started even before that. Yeah. I mean, David Wunders calls it the first culinary, America's first culinary art form. And um, I would say punch in the 18th and 17th century was probably the closest thing to a cocktail. It was, you know, a strong, a sour, a a weak, a strong, a, a sweet, a sour, a weak, and a spice, all in harmony. And that sure does describe a few cocktails that I know of, you know, and I think they were made in bowls, but eventually when they came to the United States, we kind of uh, extrapolated backwards to the glass and made our punches single serve because we were honoring and wanting things the way we wanted them, you know, but I would say punch. What, what do you think, Tony, as the very sort of beginning beginning?
3: Sure. I would think punch probably all, all roads lead back to a bowl of punch. Um, I, you know, I like to look at a more modern time, kind of what we've experienced. Um, obviously the, uh, you know, prohibition decimated our profession, our, you know, livelihood and the art of the cocktail. Um, you know, when I started in 1980, uh, there wasn't a lot of focus placed on uh, cocktails. Um, there wasn't a lot, you know, it was the classics that martini, the old fashioned um, Hopefully, you could get a good old-fashioned, um, but there really wasn't much of that creativity being placed on um, new cocktails and really celebrating the art form. There also wasn't Google, so you couldn't push a button and get a 100,000 hits on the aviation. Um, <laughs> you actually had to get an old book, which, uh, you know, fortunately, I had access to a few old books, but really didn't uh, put it into play until... Um, the mid 90s, uh, like I said, after I moved back to San Francisco in 1995 from New York and meeting you and I was all excited and fired up with this new passion and drive for the profession. And even then you had to do your research um, and, and discover some of these cocktails and then trying to find the ingredients at that time still was difficult. I remember when we, you know, Bridget, when we opened uh, Bellagio and wanting to do the casino cocktail, and this was 1998 and trying to find a bottle of maraschino liqueur and a bottle of orange bitters was impossible. Um, So, you know, when I look back and not going all the way back, you know, to the early pourings, but to, you know, getting through the seventies and eighties Um, into the 90s when we really started to have this uh, resurfacing of the craft and discovering these lost and forgotten cocktails and putting them on menus. Uh, You know, I think the first time I can consciously remember walking into a bar and seeing a cocktail menu was at the Rainbow Room. And I was like, wow, this is a novel idea. And, you know, when I went back to uh, Harry Denton and we reopened the Starlight Room, that was the first time that I was involved in putting a cocktail menu together. And uh, so I really think, you know, what you did at the rainbow room is what we now are enjoying today. Everywhere.
2: Before you went to work for Harry, Harry brought his whole team, his opening team to the rainbow room. And I toured them through the whole place. And the the rainbow room was kind of like a movie studio because on the second, on the, on the I'm sorry, on the sixty-fourth uh, floor, where we had our main private dining in our hotel kitchen, there was also a costume shop, and everybody had a different costume. You know, there were like thirty-six different costumes, and you did not take them home. You brought them back. They were cleaned for you, and they were left hanging. You know, for you the next day, and you picked them up there. Uh, it it was uh, uh, there was an executive floor in the forty-third uh, floor of Thirty Rock. Uh, There were so many elements and pieces to that puzzle uh, at at Rainbow and Harry wanted to try to recreate some of that uh, out out, out west. But I want to go back to what Joe pushed me back to and the reason I did the things that I did was when I, when he hired me at a fine dining small French restaurant on 49th Street with a two-star Michelin chef named Gerard Pango at the helm. He said to me, I want a classic 19th century cocktail program and I don't want any mixes. We're not gonna have any soda guns behind the bar. I want it done right. I want I want this, I want that. Uh, and I'm listening, You know, I've been working with a soda gun where the sour mix came out of it all my career and I'm just nodding my head, yeah, yeah. I, I remember mentioning that it might be nice to have a couple of backup uh, bottles of some some premium sour mix in case it got really busy and he stopped me in my tracks and said, <laughs> you think they had those uh, bottled sour mixes back in the 19th century? I said, well, probably not show And you think they used to get pretty busy back there in the nineteenth century? I said, Well, I suppose some places got pretty busy. Says, What do you? Well, listen, if you can't figure out how to do this, I'll find somebody who can. So, no, no, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> I got this. But uh, but I did do the, the the research in the books, and and to me, what what. Distinguished at first golden age of the cocktail, which I I mark between, you know, certainly 1862 and 1882, when those two most famous books, uh, you know, How to Mix Drinks and then Harry Johnson's book, The Bart New and Improved Bartender's Guide, when I think uh, of, of the moment when. Uh, Harry's book came out. I think that sort of demarcates the beginning of the golden age, in my opinion, because he actually lays out how to open a cocktail bar in the first 100 pages of that book. It's a stunning uh, uh, a, a sort of essay and, and, and in great detail, you know. But what, what struck me about these 19th, late 19th century bartenders, uh, and they were they were considered to be uh, in, in in the higher end places at the same level as the maitre d' of hotel. You know these these were very serious professionals, and what distinguished them people like Charles Mahoney at the Hoffman House and uh, you know uh, Harry Craddock, who worked with Charles Mahoney at the at the, at the Hoffman House before he went before he was evicted by Prohibition. That was quite a training ground for for great bartenders. That place was that they 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 paid attention to the. To the trend, trending taste changes that were happening. What was happening at the end of the 19th century is moving from sweet to to much drier. And I took that story and I did it in the new craft of the cocktail, something called the evolution of the martini. And I used the martini to show this how these bartenders slowly but surely changed the martini into dry gin and dry vermouth from Harry Johnson's first recipe in 1888, published that is, of old Tom gin, sweet vermouth, curacao, a dash of gum and a dash of bitters. That's a horse of a different color, you know. Mm -hmm. But ironically, most of the really good young bartenders looking back at Harry Johnson's recipe were loath to call anything a martini except that. So if you look in those books, uh, in the late 19th century and right up until the early aughts when uh, Charles Mahoney published this book, they called those dry gin and dry vermouth drinks other things. Charles Mahoney called the Mahoney cocktail, one of his, and two other ones were named that were dry gin and were named after regular customers. Um, the uh, the famous um, book right before prohibition in 1917, I'm trying to remember the name of, of the author he actually published and by the way these were all 50 50 martinis starting in 1888 and going right up to prohibition 50 50. okay you know and then Mm -hmm. when he went right before prohibition he still wouldn't do it this this author he called it the 50 50 cocktail it was only after prohibition that we actually would call these dry drinks martinis Mm -hmm.
3: are are you thinking of hugo Esselon? yes it was hugo Esselon. yeah that's the guy that's the guy
2: go ahead
1: Oh, no. One of the terms that you said was gum. I think that there's a lot of terms um, from the early days of bartending that maybe our listeners are not that familiar with today. Can you maybe just explain what that reference
2: is? If you melt it down and mix it in with sugar, it gives it, the sugar a smooth and silky consistency, you know, and it was, it was, sugar was kind of a little bit different in the 19th century. It was a little bit more raw. There was a bit more mass, molasses content, you know, it wasn't as, as processed as it is today. So I'm sure the gum gave it a, a, a silkiness that it needed. I'm sure, you know. Uh,
3: and it does today, if you made a, an old fashioned one with gum, uh, it, it adds that beautiful silky texture, mouthfeel. that is really quite lovely. It doesn't really affect the flavor, but, to your point, Dale, I like to use a raw sugar in drinks like that and swizzles in my old-fashioned... Doing, yeah.
2: I use a lot of Demerara syrup, you know. Um, gum Arabic, by the way, is the full name of the stuff <laughs> that we're talking about.
0: Do you feel that any of those trends came full circle where, where you went from sweet to dry? Because there was a period where well,
2: that, it was all the, about yeah, cosmopolitans. Oh, and, that's what happened in the new millennium Mm-hmm. I, I published the martini uh, in that with uh, dry gin, uh, um, sweet and dry vermouth, uh, a dash of my bitters, uh, and a spritz of absinthe, which was really going full circle back to, to the beginnings of the martini. You know, I think that, that has happened. I had my first 50-50 martini, not after I read Hugo's book, after I went to Pegu Club. Arjee Saunders put it on her menu. Yeah. I
3: think that might have been my first time with a 50-50 as well. Yeah. And uh, I think there's so much misconception around what a dry martini is. Uh, and I think a lot of it, too, was the way we treated vermouth back in the day when it was living in the speed well with a speed pour on it. And it had been there for six months and family of fruit <laughs> Super flies.
1: Super gross. <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, who wants 50% of that in there and anything, you know? So I think as we uh, started to realize to treat vermouth aromatized wine as a wine and keep it fresh and keep it refrigerated. And now all of a sudden, wow, the light bulb goes off and you have this wonderful delicious drink more vermouth, the better.
2: Yeah. I, I think the martini every two generations got reinvented basically, you know, it seemed, you know, because what happened at prohibition, the dividing line, is it went immediately from equal parts to three to one. And it stayed at three to one to two to one right up into the 50s when we had the Cold War. And then it became an eight to one. Right. We had the nuclear weapons right. hanging over our head. We needed a stronger drink.
0: So What's the COVID martini? <laughs> we're going back to eight yeah. to one. <laughs> Can we double know. that
1: recipe? Maybe triple it? Just. <laughs> Just need a straw. I don't know. <laughs>
2: it's... Yeah. I'm in. I think <laughs> maybe the three martini lunch is coming back right after COVID is over. Uh, but a three martini lunch with a 50-50 cocktail is a lot easier to handle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you think back joke. to the Thomas, the Thomas book. He has something called the, the Fancy Gin Cocktail, which, in my opinion, has the architecture of a martini. It's mostly gin with a dash of gum, a dash of curacao, a, a dash of uh, just dashes and splashes, you know. But no mm-hmm. vermouth because he didn't have vermouth in that book, that 1862 book, um, and that was a strong drink. The martini in 1888 was a much softer gin drink with half vermouth in it, you know, than right. that gin, fancy gin cocktail of Thomas's.
1: Right. Maybe it's just what the times call for, right? Sometimes we need a stiffer well, drink, Civil War. and other times, yeah. Well, that's you true. know that's
2: he published that right in the middle that's,
1: of the War. That's, that's <laughs> true. Strong
2: drink. The country is <laughs> coming apart.
1: <laughs> that's very true. That's very true. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts are around prohibition in this country, and maybe what that looked like for our industry, for the bartenders, and what we were drinking?
3: Tony, you want to start? Sure. Well, um, you know, I, I like to narrow it down to bitters um, before <laughs> prohibition every bar had 10, 12 different types of bitters, a lot of them made in house. Um, and once we went out of prohibition, it seems like bitters were one of the things that did not survive prohibition. And even when I started in 1980, most of every bar had a bottle of Angostura, but it was even rare to see pay showed. And as I was saying, you know, with the casino cocktail, which I found in Charles Schumann's book uh, in 1998, maraschino liqueur and orange bitters. Now, I don't know, Dale, when you first discovered orange bitters, but I had never seen a bottle of orange bitters in 1998. And I couldn't find them anywhere. And
2: Gaz was making it for me before he went commercial. He made it for me starting like in the
3: early 90s. Oh, wow. I, I wish I would have known that. I mean, thank God I tracked down Joe fee. And I, I remember calling Joe and I said, Joe, you're the only person I can find that has orange bitters. Could you send some to Nevada? I said, you can have as much as you want. I can't give this stuff away. Um, and that was, you know, just one drink. And now today, like you were saying gases and, and how many different waters yeah. are available? So for me, the,
2: the the effects of prohibition were the most dramatic. They, they really destroyed the profession. Uh, they uh, created a, um, a sort of a, a cloud, you know, it was gangsters, we all know it was gangsters who not just, you know, either imported or made all the booze in America. Uh, they were also the guys who ran the clubs, ran the bars, the speakeasies, everything. I mean, they, they were, you know, they were the three system from top to bottom. They they ran it all, you know, the, the from purveying to distributing to the final sales, point of sales. So, and everybody was happy to, uh, I don't think since Revolutionary War were more Americans involved in illegal activity and that wasn 't illegal that was a revolution than they were during prohibition and really because they felt that their rights had been stomped on for the same reason as revolution as the revolution but uh, they were happy to, to participate uh, willing participants in this illegal uh, operation but when when prohibition was over. Uh, and by the way, when Prohibition ended, they say there were about 1,500 spirits re- that returned in the early days after Prohibition. 1,500. We have 6,500 gins worldwide today. Jinns. Wow. Give you an idea where the industry wow. was at that time. So there was nothing in terms of what had been. Uh, so, so the bartender, uh, the ones who uh, had gone to Europe, most of them stayed in Europe. We did bring a couple of European bartenders over here early on and I'm sure in the big hotels and in, in fancy places there were some old-timers who remembered and were very very uh, good bartenders but in the average on the average in the, all the bars that opened it was they were all in the beginning beer and shot bars and there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, ingredients of the old cocktails around anymore and people didn't start schools to teach people this trade because there was no trade anymore. What they did is they invented shortcuts like sour mix. The first one was in 1937, it was called 7-Eleven Mix. And by the 60s, every bar in America had it. And the shortcuts were just a hedge against unskilled labor. They didn't train anybody. They hired common, you know, lowest common denominator folks at minimum wage uh, in many cases. And you made money on tips. Uh, so so, and I'm not saying the bartenders are all gangsters, I'm saying that what mother or father would want their child to say, oh, I'd love to be a bartender and that they're going to say, oh, really, you want to work for gangsters? Is that where you want to go with your life? So it took two generations to get over that, you know, and I think I was the first bartender at the Rainbow Room to not to be a professional because i knew so many professional bartenders coming up and in the hotels and whatever that's not what i'm getting at i was the first one who kind of made it okay for young people to go into it as a profession that say this could actually be a place where i could spend my life you know Mm -hmm. because they saw me on tv they saw me on the Today show and they said what's this guy doing you know this is so cool you know i'd like to do that it became very culinary you know suddenly people people were saying oh it's okay if it's on the Today show oh my god you know And and, um, so Prohibition was was a disaster for us and it took decades to get over it. Uh, It made a lot of money for some people. uh, And, you know, it was part of this early 20th century that just destroyed food and beverage in this country for 70 years. It wasn't until Joe Baum in in the late 50s opened the Four Seasons Restaurant, La Fonda del Sol, that people started thinking about the culinary side of the business as something fine again because we were in the era of convenience after the wars, processed food, powdered food, canned food, TV dinners, Tang, and everybody was thrilled with that convenience. You know, We really lost our way. Yeah, and Joe was early on who led us back to that, you know, along with many, many other people as time went on.
0: What do you think this COVID era is gonna do for the industry? What do you guys think is gonna happen in the next 20 to 30 years? Do you think it's impacting the profession? I mean, besides what it's doing to the, the industry, do you think it's going to have an impact on the profession?
2: What do you think, Tony?
3: I I, I can't see how it couldn't. Um, you know, it's just the longer this goes on, you know, we're a very so, social people. We're beings that we need to be social. And the longer we are uh, forced to, uh, to to kind of hibernate, to quarantine, to be, you know, alone, I think it's going to be, people are going to have a harder time getting back to it. Um, and being comfortable in that environment. The bar is a place where you, you know, it's, it's welcoming, it's social, it's, it's that kind of environment that you want to be in. But, you know, when you walk in and there's plexiglass dividers between seats, if you're even able to sit at the bar and people are, you know, wearing masks and, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I would like to say that one day we'll snap our fingers and go back to crowded bars and people having a great time and big smiles on faces and hugs. And um, but uh, I, I I don't know. I, I don't have a crystal ball in that one. But, boy, we need to <laughs> something needs to change because uh, uh, I don't think we can continue to, to go on like this.
2: Well, I'm a little more optimistic. (laughs) When I look back, kind of the, you know, long view, I mean, we survived multiple plagues in the Middle Ages, we survived the Middle Ages, you know, there were bars all through the Greek and the Roman era, we saw them when we went to Pompeii to see dugout cities, their their bars and their holes where the amphora went, you knew that there were centurions who leaned against that stone top and was shooting the shit with a bartender. That's been going on forever. And uh, we survived the 20th century for crying out loud. We survived a world war prohibition, the worst downturn ever, ever. We survived the worst flu epidemic, which killed about four, five, uh, well, so far, 10 million more people than this one has killed. We survived another war. Uh, and I absolutely believe that we will, in not too distant future, be bellying up shoulder to shoulder, Um, We will absolutely survive this. And all the people and all the friends of ours who uh, very cleverly got into business with these wonderful craft bars throughout the the early part of the new millennium, they're just as clever. They're just as smart. and Now they got a lot of experience under their belt and they're going to find an investor and they're going to come back. You know, this is not uh, in, in any way, since uh, a period of any kind, I mean, we've been recurating and, and, and mourning and celebrating and with alcoholic beverages I mean, since since we figured out you could do more with grain than make bread. You know what I mean? It, it's 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 not going to go away.
1: I'm glad that you said that. I'm glad you had a, a cheerier outlook than my friend Tony. <laughs> I'm so glad <laughs> because I feel like we're we're very resilient. as an industry and as people and we're also very scrappy and so we do tend to pull ourselves up from the bootstraps and get back to work in any way that we can and right now we're doing it very creatively across the country with to-go cocktails even using instead of menus like qr codes you know whatever it might be we're sure as hell trying to stay in business to make an impact and not to let our industry just go away you know, not, not to let it just to die. So um, I too hope that the future is incredibly bright um, for our industry. Yes, uh, right uh, now, it's it's tough. Yeah. it's tough. There's a lot of pain out there. It's very tough for all of us, but I do feel like we'll get through it. It's just going to take a, some time.
2: I watched a uh, Diageo work cl- uh, shop before uh, we did this today, and it was actually coming from amsterdam uh test posthumous who has the flying dutchman bar and another bar in amsterdam and a guy in singapore who has a really wonderful bar uh we're talking about what they're doing and what they're doing of course is bottling canning and shipping out uh, cocktails to to their to their uh general public you know and how and the, this, the whole seminar was all the clever things that they're doing to promote this business you know uh, uh and I was just incredibly impressed with, with their, the creativity of, of, of the, uh, the way they're marketing it, you know, they've, they, the way they're delivering it uh, and how they communicated with their with their clientele through the social media and all the little perks, you know, throwing in little bites and little crackers that they make in house, this wonderful stuff. And and the, uh, and the, the sense of humor they have that, you know, that the hook that they use to grab people to order their first can or their first bottle of this stuff. And I just thought, well, wow, these these guys are, they're just, they've got it. And of course they're doing the same thing in New York, you know, they're doing the same thing everywhere. I mean, where's, I mean, uh, our friends, uh, uh, Julie Reiner at Clover Club is doing it, you know, she's doing small and 750s selling them right out of the front door, you know, (laughs) it's great news.
3: So, so do you yeah. think this is the future, Dale? I think that was the question. Do you think this continues or do you think this is just a bridge to, as Bridget said, to, to be able to stay in business, to keep the doors open somehow? Um, well, or- I guess local law
2: enforcement and our legislators will make that decision, won't they? Because we, they've kind of looked the other way through this whole thing. And we're going to have to find out if we're going to be able to get some laws on the books that will allow this kind of off-premise to remain on premise.
0: Yeah, I think a couple of states have already um, done that, but yeah, that would be by state. And I think another thing that we've noticed is just the, I think nothing can take away that in-person connection, but what we've seen a lot from bartenders, mixologists, brand ambassadors is a way to connect with people virtually, which we've always had those capabilities in the past, but probably didn't find a need to use it. And I think that's been really special because we're people being able to be educated um, across the country and all time zones, actually across the world, logging into these different seminars and Tales of the Cocktail having the biggest turnout ever. Um, so I think that's that's quite fascinating. And I wonder if that'll continue or, or that'll people move away from that once they can have that in-person connection.
2: Um, the thing that might... My- a little bit slow coming back is, you know, when when the when the '90s ended and uh, all the big spirits companies were just flooding the market with premium and super premium products and some not so premium products, uh, they 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 really wanted to uh, you know hedge their bets and make sure this wasn't a flash in the pan. So they started dumping a lot of money into education of the trade, a lot of money. And my company, my my partners and I, company, you know, were the beneficiary of some of that with Bar Smarts. Uh, Well, the bartenders who took it were the beneficiary, and they, they, and you know, the software was ours, the hardware was theirs, and the money was theirs. They they built this uh, million dollar program that you can take over a period of a month. And and uh, Diageo did the same thing. Southern has their own you know educational branch, and, and a lot, a lot of money that used to go into print ads and stuff like that went into this and it was so well spent. Uh, Whether or not when COVID ends, that same approach will be taken by the big drinks companies is the question. Are they gonna be willing to underwrite Tales of the Cocktail going forward as a live uh, event? Are they going to continue to use as much of their budget in uh, education of the trade? As they have been and that question. I mean, I know that everybody has shut down their budgets until 2021. It'll be interesting to see when the new budgets come out in 2021 through 22 how much money is actually going to be put into trade training.
1: You know, I do hope that um, that we see some sort of a hybrid uh, platform come out of all of this because what I've noticed, you know, using Zoom, using webinars, and I have to say before COVID, I always had a sticker over my camera. And just in case it accidentally popped on when I was, you know, doing something, I never used the thing ever. So and now I use it all day, every day, right? So I'm really hoping that something hybrid comes out of it, because something that's really great about virtual is that uh, you, you really get to reach a broader audience. It gives access to so many people that maybe couldn't afford to go to a lot of these cocktail conferences, you know, it really gives um, a new platform and it is exciting. You know, it's pretty great that we are all four of us, for instance, today, we're in completely four different States across the, you know, across the U S but we're able to come together, you know, to chat and to actually see each other. Although our listeners won't be able to see us, Mm -hmm. but we can see each other. So there is a beauty to that. I, of course, you know, prefer in person, hugs, cocktails, all of it. Mm -hmm. But if we can come out of this with some sort of a hybrid platform that gives access to everyone, I think that that would be really awesome.
2: Yeah, for sure. How's your beer company coming in this COVID?
1: (laughs) It's the same. Same, just just like for everybody else, the same. Yeah, a lot of of to-go business. Yep,
2: yep.
1: For sure. But we're still there, still alive and well. So, (laughs) one day, one day at a time.
2: This book coming out kind of was a savior for me because it, you know, I had. You get four payments when you write a book: one when you sign the contract, one when you turn in the manuscript, one on pub day, and then one six months after that. So the last two payments are coming very in a very timely fashion for me, you know, in the middle of COVID. So uh, there's a Something to be said for the publishing industry. I wasn't really particularly high on writing another version of this book because I was making money on the first one, you sure. know, right up until now. I mean, I'm in my seventeenth hardcover printing with that book, and uh, I didn't think I'd go there because the book came out on the eve of of nine eleven. You know, mm-hmm. it went in the can on the eve of 9-11 and I couldn't even comment on nine eleven. And of course, New York was a Ghost town for 18 months after 9-11 and I didn't know whether anything would happen but New Yorkers are very resilient as you said and after 18 months of this crap they said no we've had enough and they came back gangbusters you know
1: absolutely you know and you both are published authors I'm a fan huge fan of 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 all of your books and um so Dale what What inspired you to come out with the next edition, which is called, you know, the new craft of the cocktail? And how is it different from the original, the OG that released 20 years ago?
2: Well, it it still does the things that did. That book was a book I wished I'd had when I was 24 years old and there was no Google and nobody really knew anything. And the books that were around were long lists of ingredients, you know, like, Oh, Mr. Boston, Stephen Kittred Cunningham's books, the long black ones that just had a thousand drinks, you know, but no, nothing more. You didn't get to see what the garnish looked like or any techniques. Or, so I, you know, I had pictures of me holding, shaking, breaking the seal all the pictures of all the garnish and the glassware, everything. I wanted people to see and understand, you know, and that's what that was all about. Now that we all got that stuff down cold, you know, I, I did show the new tools, of course, because they're so expanded from what we had before. Uh, as Tony knows with his company, Modern... Technologist. Technologist. Yeah, um, the, the, uh, the thing about it was I, I, I wanted to sh- shine a light on these really talented young people. So there's a lot of guest recipes. That was important. And they're friends of mine, these people. And I wanted them to write a little bit throughout. And so there's a little bit of writing from them in there with their cocktails. But I also wanted to tell those same young bartenders and the general public why we have a craft cocktail movement. And my contention is, and you can read more about it in the book, that we were we not preceded by uh, over 30 years of this incredible culinary revolution, which just expanded the dining possibilities. To give you an example, when the first Zagat Guide in New York, which is a restaurant guide, came out, there were like six or eight ethnic cuisines listed in the back. There are over 100 in, in the last published Zagat Guide. There were over 100. Uh, we just went crazy on the culinary side and people fell in love with big flavors, forget the 50s, they, fe- they fell in love, they-, they took chances, they were willing to take chances on all kinds of crazy foods. And guess what? That's the audience that was created for us on the bar side of the business. As we became more culinary in our, in our uh, approach to making drinks, that was our audience and without that audience, I don't think just... This- craft cocktail thing would happened, you know so i go into that in the book as well that was another reason i was a little intimidated because this was pretty challenging. you know young men and women out there so i didn't try to compete with them on that level you know i didn't do modern mixology or you know molecular <laughs> <laughs> Whatever any of that. There are a few little things tossed in, but mostly I know I can make cocktails with a high degree of deliciousness. I had a lot of new cocktails that I had come up with over the last 20 years. I threw all those in there. And uh that's what's that's what's all, it's all about the new craft of the cocktail. <laughs> it's
1: it's really exciting. Um, Tony, you know, you have a couple books under your belt as well. You have the modern mixologist and and one of my favorites as well, vodka distilled. You literally wrote the book on vodka. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your books?
3: No, absolutely. Uh, and as Dale mentioned, you know, with craft coming out, really changed the landscape of books. Uh, with modern uh, mixologists, I, I really wanted to reach out to the consumer and encourage the consumer to to take a, a, an interest not only in what we were doing on the craft movement uh, in behind the bar, but also to, to kind of break down that... Uh, and allow them to feel like they have a little piece of this themselves and they are armed now with the ability to make some uh, cocktails at home and as Dale mentioned going into the tools and how to use the tools and and really break down the mystery and show them how easy it is and with modern um, it's really a collection of my take on some classics and really the original drinks that I've developed uh, really since uh, the Harry Denton days in San Francisco, right up to uh, 2010 when the book was published. So uh, with Vodka Distilled, we went through a little period uh, behind the bar. For some reason, uh, there was a a distaste (laughs) towards uh, the vodka category. And I couldn't figure it out. I didn't, you know, I was like, what what did Vodka ever do to you? You know, (laughs) Dale and I had the great pleasure of spending the better part of three years together doing finishing school, uh, not only around this country, but in five other countries. And it was just really the the response that we got from bartenders was fantastic. So I, I, I really just, you know, I think it was our friend Charlotte Voice. He said, through deeper knowledge comes greater enjoyment and with vodka distilled, I, I really wanted to show that it's, you know, they don't all taste the same. It's not just uh, a throwaway spirit. There's a, a, a great beauty to the subtle differences of vodkas. So that was the motivation behind vodka distilled. And I was, you know, w- lucky enough to have Bridget and Dale participate in the book. Uh, you were both here in Ma- Las Vegas and we tasted through a couple hundred vodkas together. And, uh, Uh, That was an experience that, uh, you know, I hope uh, comes across in the book uh, because it really was special to me. And and Dale, thank you for writing the forward as well. Uh, So
2: nobody has done that before to actually publish the extensive tasting notes. That was Mm -hmm. a really great idea.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun being part of that.
3: Well, and when I do tastings and especially tastings for consumers, but also for professionals um, you know I, I said these are the, the notes that Steve Olson and Bridget and myself and Dale put together refer back to them and make your own notes and see you know what you find in, in the glass because really it's not about the marketing it's all about what's in the glass and you take away the perception and let's just judge on and uh, mm-hmm. what the, the product is in the glass.
1: What about your bitters? You know, you both um, have beautiful bitters that are on the market as well. And we talked about a little bit about bitters and what was happening, you know, um, right after Prohibition, how they just weren't available. What inspired you both to come out with your own signature bitters?
2: Well, I, I was really unhappy when, uh, in, in the late nineties, uh, maybe around 96, uh, a a product that I used a lot it was called Ray and Nephew Pimento Dram. I used it as a spice you know it was a sweet all-spice liqueur and I missed it terribly. I remember going after the distributor and then he told me that he talked to the producer uh, down down in the Caribbean. (laughs) The producer said well I can't leave it on the market. There's only two people using it. Some guy in San Francisco and some guy in New York. <laughs> I was the guy in New York. <laughs> and so they took it off the market. And that was happening, you know, still in the 90s. You know, there's some things that, uh, cause craft really hadn't happened yet. So we lost some things as well as gaining some things um, toward the end of the, of the decade. We mostly gained, but um, I, I, made this in my kitchen i have a little bottle of it I, I i wanted to show this bottle because this is the first palette from the first palette that was manufactured in kentucky wow we've been manufacturing this for seven years in combier in france mm-hmm. and we, we have never made a dime <laughs> we thought ted Rowe and i thought that geez you know instead of this being a hobby where we have just enough money to buy the next palette how about we make some money so we did switch all of our production and ted oversaw that he's our master distiller uh, and uh, I'm very proud of what they did. I tasted it this week. It just came. I just got my samples. Oh, amazing. And better than what we got in Combier, I think, you know. as where Gaz's Bitters is made also in Sazerac down in Kentucky. But uh, I made it in my kitchen, and, and then when Anne had that bitters competition at Tales of the Cocktail, Anne Rogers, she was called back then, mm-hmm. um, I was going to enter my homemade Allspice bitters into the uh, into the competition, but Jill, my wife, always the practical one, read the fine <laughs> print where it said the tails would own the recipes of any of the stuff that was entered. Yeah, <laughs> said I don't think so. <laughs> That's when I went to Ted Rowe, and because he, I, I, I had read the profile about him in the New Yorker magazine. He was the guy that brought absinthe back to America. And I had met him a couple times through the Museum of the American Cocktail down in New Orleans. He was a New Orleanian that got evicted by Katrina and never went back. He's in Birmingham, Alabama now. And I said, and I sent him my sample from my homemade product. And I, I said, can you make this commercially? And he said, sure. And that began a year and a half of samples going back and forth. Wow. And then about six and a half years ago, we went into production in Columbia because that's where he owns two stills and that distillery and makes his absinthe. By the way, Combiere, if you ever get a chance, I highly suggest that you visit this story. It was designed by Gustave Eiffel in the 19th century. It's one of the most. It's a work of art. Wow. You know. Well,
1: hopefully, when um, when I'm allowed to leave my hometown, yeah, <laughs> I haven't <laughs> really haven't been, been allowed past, to go to Europe now. I haven't been past my driveway in a long time. <laughs> <But> it sounds <laughs> like a dream. <laughs> it sounds very anyway. <laughs> can you can you tell us, you know, with your bitters, what what.
2: Of pimento is the reason I called it pimento, and mm-hmm. my wife got mad at me for doing that. She said, "Everybody's going to think it's peppers, you know." Yeah. Well, here's what happened um, way back in the 17th century um, when the South America and Central America was being colonized, the Spaniards saw in in uh, what is today Venezuela the indigenous peoples um, grinding up these big black. What they thought were peppercorns. Uh, In fact, they were allspice berries, but they called them pimento because that was their word word for pepper. But John Ray, a botanist from England, was also down there grousing around taking samples back home with him to work on in the lab of of stuff and find out what it was and what it could be used for. And when he got to the allspice berries, he ground them up. And when he started to enjoy the aroma and fool with them in different ways, he realized that that they're locked in this little, in this little, thing was was cinnamon and, and, and clove and nutmeg and he said oh my god this is like all spices together you know and in the English language allspice stuck and in the Spanish language pimento stuck well I, I was inspired by pimento jam liqueur so I thought I'd call it pimento bitters but I always know if it ever gets a critique because I remember one critique of my bitters where the guy said I really love the bitters. And boy, those pimento peppers come so strong. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but uh, that's the story of pimento. Yeah.
1: How are you using them in a cocktail? How do you suggest our listeners use them in a cocktail?
2: I, I, I use the dram in sort of tiki, fruity drinks because those are always kind of a little too sweet and they need some toning down. And this is the bitterest bitters on the market, believe me. I almost encourage bartenders not to taste it, but to do this, to smell it and understand what it is. Uh, so I actually started playing with it then uh, with other things. And the first thing I started playing with it in was the Manhattan, which inspired me to do that Manhattan tasting that I did. All I remember
1: the that. Mm-hmm.
2: And I put five aromatic bitters into a generic Manhattan, and each one of those bitters with a couple of jobs. So each one of those Manhattans with a couple of jobs of bitters was completely different, running the gamut from very, very dry all the way up to sweet. You know, and uh, so I said, gee, these bitters, you know, they make a fabulous dry Manhattan. And then I started playing with them in other stuff and realized that you could put them in bouillabaisse because they have that anise note. You could put them in Rooster's Rockefeller for the same reason, you know. I dashed them on stuffies, stuffed clams and things like that, or Mm. clams casino. And uh, I think they're much more versatile than I originally intended, you know.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. I'm going to start putting mine on everything. <laughs> like you said, on oysters, and on popcorn. A yeah, why not? <laughs> right next to my Tabasco, put them together. Uh, Tony, you know, same question to you. You also have bitters um, on the market, the double barrel chicory pecan uh, bitters. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to create your own brand of bitters?
3: Um, no, absolutely. But before I do, I just want to Comment. The first bottle of Dale's bitters that I got, I, I don't remember, uh, Dale, if you remember, we were in Charleston with Charlotte, and we were doing a food and wine festival there, and uh, I was using their monkey shoulders uh, scotch uh, malt, and uh, a lot of Bobby Burns recipes don't call for bitters, occasionally you'll see it, um, but I tried it with your bitters, and it makes an absolutely beautiful Bobby Burns, and it is so subtle, you know. Without the bitters, and then a dash, it just elevates it to another level.
2: I'm a little embarrassed now, Tony, because there's a uh, take on the Bobby Burns in my new book that Naren sent to me as his cocktail.
3: <laughs> oh, really? And what he did was he put my
2: bitters in it. <laughs> and I'd forgotten <laughs> about. <it>. Oh, wow. <laughs> you're ripping me vision. off!
3: <laughs> yeah. I but still to this day, when I put it on a menu, I include your bitters. And uh, if I enjoy one at home, I, I need another bottle because the only one I have is signed by you and I refuse to open it. But uh, well, yeah, I, I was contacted, oh, maybe four or five years ago by Greg Wilson from Wilkes and Wilson in Indianapolis. And uh, he said, you know, what do you think about collaborating on a bitters? And I was like, Greg. The last thing the bartending world needs right now is another bitters. <laughs> um, we were inundated with bitters. And he said, well, we're doing something different. I've got a couple old whiskey barrels and I'm, I've been aging some coffee, some chicory coffee. And uh, let's play with it. And so he sent me some samples and I i, I could see something there. but I was, So again, it was a back and forth for about a year because they have to sit in these whiskey barrels. Um, And then we finally, you know, came up with the chicory pecan bitters. And it was something that was unique that I hadn't seen uh, on the market. And it works beautifully with rum. And we were just at the time opening Libertine Social at Mandalay Bay and doing a lot of swizzles and using a lot of different rums. And I found that the bitters work so beautifully with aged rums. So to Dale's point, kind of that tiki Caribbean feel and it really works beautifully. Not my favorite in a Manhattan, but I do like it a lot in an old fashioned. And uh, today, uh, you know, we have Highlands and Hearth in Detroit at the Renaissance Center in our house, old fashioned. We bought a barrel of Knob Creek single barrel. So we went down and went down with Bobby G, our buddy Bobby, and we tasted barrels and we bought a barrel. Uh, and this bitters with that whiskey makes the most amazing old fashioned. And it's our number one selling drink there to the point where we're probably going to need to go down and buy another barrel. So uh, hopefully we get through this. We can start traveling because we need another barrel of Knob Creek.
1: I think Julie and I would like to be on that trip.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We should all go. We should all just go.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Crash
3: at Fred's house, have dinner. (laughs) Tails in.
1: Tails in. Absolutely. What um what changes are you seeing right now in our industry?
3: Well be besides the obvious. Besides (laughs) besides
1: the obvious. Besides the fact that, you know, we're we're doing um we're being as scrappy as we can. But what changes are you seeing in our industry that you hope will be evergreen that will last?
3: Well, I really think that these to-go cocktails, canned cocktails, bottled cocktails—I think people are able to like. They can take food to go, take the entire experience, and take that cocktail experience home with them. I, I, I foresee that continuing, and hopefully, as Dale mentioned, uh, a lot of states will get on board and make this a permanent thing. Um, uh, you know, I, I think things are going to come. Kind of go back to a simpler way uh, i 'll be curious to see uh, what the back bar looks like in two years, three years, you know if we 're going to have these great selections to offer our guests. Um, I hope so uh, you know I, i'm curious to see what 's going to happen with all the micro to small distillers that have opened up um, they 're so dependent on uh, craft bars and bartenders to really embrace their brands. I think today people are probably drinking more than ever, but I think it's probably more of the established brands that people are picking up at leaves liquor, as opposed to searching out these more esoteric brands. So I'd be curious to really see what's going to happen in that environment. I, I hope it, I mean, cause as Dale alluded to, there's so many products that, on the market today, so many wonderful products that are being produced uh, and a lot of them being produced by smaller producers, uh, we'll see if, they, if uh, how many of those can, can survive and thrive through this. Um, I hope, uh, you know, <laughs> we go back uh, with a greater appreciation of the hospitality that we are so accustomed to providing and enjoying in this industry.
2: You know, Tony, um, uh, I think with this whole canned and bottled cocktail thing, what's happened because there's just no money around. A lot of these bars are just running through stock that they have in inventory. And so they have become very creative and they're using things that they didn't think they would use in ways that they didn't think they would do. And I think it's been an incredible learning process to see people that don't have money to buy new stock, using all the old stock and using it uh, in clever and tasty ways. So yes, I agree with you, there's going to be a simplifying. I think that the um, business part of the craft cocktail movement was the weakest, you know, in terms of the setup and the business plan. And you know, I'm not saying that people didn't write good business plans, some did. But uh, the attention to details like inventory and shrinkage and all that stuff, I think will become much more uh, organized and much more controlled post-COVID. Uh, and I think you'll see in inventories at bars, um, They'll be carrying uh, dollar value inventories will, will decrease, I think, uh, just because uh, the experience they've been through, uh, which means people with really good spirits are going to have to be a little bit more competitive in the way they market them you know, to these bars. Uh, I do believe that the craft bars will be back strong and bigger uh, because they're realizing that speakeasies is not a good business plan. Right. Uh, and by the way, you and I were fools to start making something that you sell in drops in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> what ounces, huh? What <laughs> I, and I are working on ounces.
3: <laughs> anyway,
2: uh, I think that that'll, I don't think that the, that the creativity and the culinary uh, applications and ingredients that have found their way into the glasses will go away. I think that's here to stay and yeah, i love yeah. that and i think also there will be more attention in now that they're building new bars as the, the old bars are 70% of them may not make it i think when they make that workbench you're going to see workbenches that it resemble Garmad stations a little bit more than they ever did before because of all the new culinary ingredients that we have to store under refrigeration and in different ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I just see a lot of, uh, and I think the business plan of small bites and cocktails will be ke- become even more prevalent as people try to get back into business. Mm-hmm.
3: No, I, I've always preached and loved the whole concept of the aperitivo, you know, the aperitivo hour, that gathering, like you said, small plates, lower ABV cocktails, um, just kind of celebrating the end of the work day and leading into the evening plans. But I've, you know, we haven't really embraced that. I think, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, um, uh, the great place in New York city, uh, that Naren opened, um, Really celebrates the aperitivo. Hour. Oh, Dante. Dante.
1: Dante. Oh, I love Dante. Great spot.
3: Um, I, I think you're right. I think it's a, that type of uh, entertaining, smaller plates, small, meet friends after work, you know, recreating the happy hour in a social way. Like I said, uh, I think we really need to be able to bring back that social interaction in the bar environment, uh, you know, that, that puts a smile on my face when they, so, uh, <laughs> and you're right about the not making any money. I think I've gotten one check and I said, uh, go ahead and just make a donation to the Helen David relief fund. Uh, <laughs> and so my <somebody, laughs> one drop at a time, love it.
0: <laughs> what, what advice would you both give to somebody that, um, is not yet in, the the bar industry but does aspire or maybe considering wanting to become a professional bartender what's that advice you'd give to them
3: well my advice has always been uh kind of based on my own personal background and that is work with and learn from great bartenders um i've had the great honor from starting with my original mentor helen david in 1980 to working and learning from great people um Harry Denton, we talked about, and, you know, Dale, I know, has spoken about Joe Baum, and, uh, you know, I, I think that we've almost lost that, Where you know, Harry was such a character, he was such a great host, um, didn't work behind the bar, but made the bar that environment where, you know, people wanted to be, you know, said, I can build a beautiful stage, but it's uh, the actors that bring it to life every night, and make people want to be there, uh, I, the art of the, of, of the host, of the great maitre d', you know, the people that bring people in, um, so, yeah, work with and learn from great bartenders, and, you know, I've taken things from Dale, I've taken things from Jack Slick, I've taken, you know, little things, how I whipped the cream for an Irish coffee, uh, you know, when I worked uh, at McNally's Irish Pub, so it floats just perfectly, all these little things, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, you know, and I'm still learning, you know, never stop learning. If you stop learning, you stop living.
1: I love Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. You stop learning, you stop living. You know, there's this, this wonderful cultural shift also happening, um, in our industry and, you know, beyond the bottles, beyond the bar space. And that really is the people and, you know, what we're seeing all over social media and the conversations that I personally have been having as well with, um, our friends in the industry really across the country and internationally as well, is that inclusion that is happening more now than ever before, um, whether it's with the females behind the bar, you know, the LGBTQIA, or um, even the Black um, community as well. We're seeing this really beautiful um, support and outreach happening within our community to really to raise each other's up more now than ever before and i really want to get your thoughts on that and maybe some um insights on what we could be doing better as a community and um and how you see us coming
2: together well i uh, you know one of the wards now in most big cocktail competitions like tales of the cocktail or like uh the uh, 50 best bars. Um, One of the awards has become best bar team. And you know something, when I started attending bar in the middle of the 70s, there were no bar teams. Um, There was a register at that end of the bar and a register at that end of the bar. And you did not touch the other man's register. As a matter of fact, in a lot of these joints, especially the Irish places on the east side of New York and other cities, these old dudes who ran these for 40, 50 years, but when I got to town, you know, and uh, these were bars that opened after prohibition, the bottom line was a really, really important thing. And you know they'd say to you, uh, "What happened to you Saturday night?" Uh, you know, Phil ran like 2,900 bucks on interest in journey ran 1900. What's going on, man?" You know so this mm-hmm. wasn 't a team, this was a competition, <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> and, uh, the fact that in the new millennium uh, there has been this coming together, this crowd rise uh, mentality of assisting bartenders in need people without insurance, because, you know, historically, the only people that got your insurance were the big hotel bartenders, period. You know, maybe the big clubs that were in the hotel unions. Other than that, you're on your own. And to see the kind of uh, reaching out uh, that's happened with the Helen David Foundation, with uh, Speed Rack, with just regular bartenders coming together for our friend at ZigZag when he had to have a heart transplant you know and come together and raise in a matter of two and a half weeks two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. i mean you know i worldwide i've never seen anything like it in my life this just simply never existed before you know and i think it's a lovely thing and gaz reagan became the godfather of this whole feeling um and he he, he really sums it up uh, about the profession of bartending, when he says, "You know, we can change the world one customer at a time." <laughs> if you think about it that way, uh, we lost a we lost a real visionary when we lost gas. Yeah. Uh, and you know, he didn't start out that way. I remember him when he was a like a pub bartender down in 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 on uh, the lower uh, areas of Manhattan when he was working in the seaport. You know, he was just this really jolly, you know, bearded. You know, raunchy, wonderful character. <laughs> and <bark. laughs> and uh, when he had his uh, bout with cancer and beat it, he seemed to come out the other end a changed person in the sense, not, not that he was different at his core, he was still a wonderful Bart, wonderful, but uh, you know, looking at life in a different way as people do when they've had a brush with death. And uh, it, we, we all benefited from that, you know.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, God bless, God bless Gaz. I think it's somebody that we all. Missed, I know I miss him terribly as well mm. and it's had such a beautiful impact on bringing um, people together in our industry and always really seeing the brighter side of things in a very comical, sometimes raunchy way, as you just said, Dale. He's yeah. A, I, amazing, I love, human. amazing human. Yeah.
0: I love that concept of, of really talking about the bar team because as a customer, you know when the bar is operating as a team. You know, there's um, there's a really good flow and a good energy. And and I think that's the best description of an equal, diverse workplace is when everybody works as a team. That's great.
3: Yeah, I think my first interaction with the concept of a bar team would have been with Harry Denton uh, on Stewart Street where we were just it was just uh, like going to a sporting event when you showed up at work and you were in the locker room and you were getting suited up and prepped and ready to go into battle because you knew you were just going to be hammered for the next eight to ten hours Mm -hmm. and everyone had everyone's back and you know it was just it was truly teamwork from the bartender to the bar back who was really the captain because without a great bar back you were all of a sudden you're treading water because you're out of vodka and you don't have any ice in your well. Um, it was that beautiful ballet behind the bar that was so well orchestrated. And it was funny because when I got to Bellagio, when I got to Las Vegas and I got into that union environment and I, I was like, what, wait, wait, I don't get this. You, you don't take care of these customers. You only take care of these customers uh, That's not your section and you don't split tips and you're not, you know, it's not a team. Um, and to your point Dale, yeah, everyone was very much, this is my job. This is my shift. This is, these are my six stools and you don't come into my area. And I was like, how can you work like that? You know, you, you, you your guest suffers because you're not, you know, maybe you're busy and he needs another drink. And, um, it was, uh, it took a little getting used to. And I've since always to this day, you know, it, it's about working together as a team and, uh,
2: well, you know, you changed Las Vegas, Tony, because I remember coming into the Bellagio all those years. That was a team. That yeah. Bellagio team was a definite team, you know. You had a lot of people. I had a lot of people at the rain broom. I had to have a team just to survive, you know. I hired 34 bartenders when we opened that. You probably hired twice that, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, times maybe.
3: That. Six or seven times that, but... <laughs> seven times without know, so a
2: team, you would have been just completely, you know, out to yeah. sea. And I think uh, that there are still bartenders from the early days of Bellagio who are on, moved on to other places that miss that camaraderie that existed at those bars and at that place. It was, it's still, there are still a lot of them left there that didn't leave. And, you know, a lot of my team members at the Rainbow Room, when the... When, uh, when the uh, Cipriani's took over, they didn't—they didn't go. It was a really good union job. Why should they? They kept that teamwork among themselves, you know. Even though the the owners were not really you know, to help with that, they were the opposite. I, actually,
1: I mean, I can tell you, just being on part of that team, part of Tony's team for years, was—he um, really instilled a sense of pride and passion for the craft of bartending that I know that, I and I can speak for us. We just didn't feel prior. We just didn't have that installed in us um, until he really taught us about the tools and about the bottles and about the cocktails and told us so many stories that we we're able to share with our guests and got us so excited mm-hmm. that we really kept each other very honest behind the bar as well. Like, hey, you put too many bitters in that. Or I mean, we, we <laughs> drove each other crazy. And then when we would see Tony coming, you know, um, through the casino, I mean, I remember getting on the phone and being like, Dorothy, the eagle has landed, meaning <laughs> Tony's in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Your ship better be right. He is is on property. He might come by. You know, your glasses better be polished. Your uniform better be clean. Your nails better be done. I started doing my nails because of Tony Abaganum. I don't know if you remember <laughs> that one day being like, what is this? People see these nails, and these cuticles and I got them done every two weeks ever since. That's been going on for 22 years. So like, yeah.
2: You, hearing you tell that story reminds me of the of the old uh, Joe Bomb stories. When Joe was operating uh, a dozen restaurants around the island of Manhattan, and some of them the best restaurants in the world, the Four Seasons, Four, and the 12 Caesars, La Fonda Dole. So, you know, when he walked out the door of one restaurant the Matron d was immediately on the phone he's coming your way <laughs> <laughs> yeah I we set out the bat really the
1: bat signal right
2: <laughs> you need to know
1: and we would love it and but i have to say tony would come behind the bar and he would polish glasses with us you know he would always help he would always help bus um i remember him rolling up his sleeves and i think it for you tony and you know was it just you just really love the craft so much and would you know we weren't afraid to jump back there and help and to speak to the customers and to really be truly a part of the the whole experience
3: Well, I would say that you know i've been very blessed uh with my career, but you know it has taken me away from being behind the bar and I think at the end of the day it's that interaction with the guest um, being behind the bar that really fulfills that scratches that itch, if you will, of what makes being a bartender so special. So um, I love everything I get to do today, but I don't love anything more than being behind the bar. And even if it requires polishing glasses, uh, just to be back behind the bar, because that's where I feel the most uh, at home. And uh, yeah, there's no substitute for that. I
1: love that. Um, Can you tell us, all about, I know that um, you're definitely a bartender at heart and you do a lot of great humanitarian work for so many. And I would love for you to tell us about your Helen David um, works and foundation.
3: Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, 10 years ago, uh, I wanted to do something for the industry and to keep Helen's memory alive because she, was, she instilled so many life lessons in uh, to me, that um, and one of them was it. Would, you know, she was very philanthropic. She always gave back to the community. She was known as the first lady of Port Huron. Um, churches, hospitals, softball teams. You know, somebody's kid needed a new pair of shoes. I mean, Helen was there, and she had uh, beaten breast cancer twice in her life. Uh, back when it was rare to beat breast cancer, and she was very. Uh, um, she was a big advocate towards the cause, so when she passed in 2006 of uh, a heart attack um, at the age of 91, uh, I really wanted you know a woman who ran a bar for 70 years and had done so much for our me personally, but for our industry and um, so in her memory, I started the Helen David Relief Fund to benefit bartenders who have been affected by breast cancer. Dale alluded to insurance and uh, things are much better today with bartenders with insurance, but it's the incidental expenses and in, that come along with being out of work. Um, the co-payments need to be made, the wigs, the groceries, the rent needs to be paid, all these things that you you're not working, um, and you, you need to focus on being able to recover uh, from your treatments. And that really is what the Helen David is there for to bartenders, helping bartenders. So we formed team Negroni. Um, we really need to talk about the Negroni by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we formed team Negroni, which is our bicycle team. And we encourage bartenders to not only raise awareness and funds for the Helen David, but also to take care of their own personal health and well-being. And for me personally, being out on my bicycle, not only physically, it's uh, wonderful, but you know, I get to ride out in Red Rock and it clears my head and I'm just, you know, I, I out in fresh air and sunshine and just have that time for me. And, uh, encouraging bartenders to really look at their own health and well-being as well as helping those less fortunate. So I want to get everybody on their bicycles and ride with Team Negroni and raise some funds for the Helen David Relief Fund.
2: Hey, Tony, I'm holding up a menu from the Rainbow Room from 1988. I want you to look right between the Moscow Mule and the Old Fashioned and tell me what you see. (laughs) The Moscow
3: Mule...
1: Oh! Oh, wow! That's amazing. From night, so folks, it it says Negroni. I know you're just listening, but
3: it's a Negroni. Wow. Negroni.
2: <laughs> but well. you know what happened? I took it off in 1990 because people didn't like Campari, and we didn't have any Campari for beginners. Aperol wasn't in the country yet, you know. Right. And I was making the mistake because I was learning. And boy, let me tell you, that was a very short learning curve at the Rainbow Room. And you needed to get yourself in gear. But I was serving my Negronis up. And the Italians understand bitter aperitivos. They've been serving them in large glasses over ice for a long time. And that's the way the Negroni has been served since the beginning. Because that, well, those three ingredients come together when the water starts to Uh, you know, dilute this in this mixture, these strong spirits, you know. But if you do it up, as it gets warmer, it gets more bitter. And it's not the way to serve it to an American. And that's what I did. And I couldn't give it away. You know, it was one third, one third, one third, stirred, chilled nicely cold, and put it in the cold glass, but they wouldn't go for it. You know, it was a different time, a different place.
3: (laughs) Well, I don't know if you remember, uh, Dale, But uh, I learned the Negroni from David O'Malley in 1991. Not only did I learn it up, but in California then, everything was shaken. Shaken. And I learned the Negroni as a shaken drink straight up. Now, in 1991, and up until when I met you in 1993, it was virtually impossible to find anyone who had ever heard of a Negroni, let alone knew how to make it. Uh, and I don't know if I was testing you or, but when I sat at the bar at the rainbow room, I ordered a Negroni and yes, you served it to me up, but that was where I also learned about the burnt orange twist.
2: Uh-huh. Yes.
1: <laughs> the burnt yeah. orange twist. Let's talk about that too.
3: <laughs> Which uh, stayed with me and, when we opened Bellagio in 1998, sure enough, the Del Groff burn orange twist—that
1: <laughs> was one of the first things that we learned from with our shaken Negroni at the time. <laughs> before we before we went into stirring it a couple of years after, but yeah.
3: But like you said, you know, you don't know what you don't know, and yep. until you find a, a, a better way. And you know, I had never visited Italy prior to that, and you know, when I did finally go to Florence exactly what you said, Dale, everyone was drinking Negronis over ice and I, that was, you know, that light bulb moment, but uh, you don't know. Luca you- Piki. Yeah. You yeah. know, Luca, right? Yeah. Uh, What's a uh, cafe? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, it's right, right there in the square. Right there in the square. Um, starts with an R. Rivoli. Rivoli? Rivoli. Re- Revol- Revol- yes.
2: It's, um. it's, the Hangout for Americans because they serve a bacon and egg breakfast. And oh. he has a great job. <laughs> he starts serving those things in the morning, and he works until 6 o'clock. So he's got a 9 to 5 job. I mean, you know, this is unheard of in a bartending world, but he loves his job, Luca. Uh, he, he's a delightful character. When when I was there in, in Firenze with an artist friend of mine and a couple of his kids, he has seven of them, um, we, we were there on a daily basis, you know, to have bacon and eggs. And uh, I remember Lucas saying, Dale, uh, the, 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 he teaches. He's, a, he's, a, he's the godfather of the, of the, of the cocktail bartender in, in Florence. Come to my class tonight, you know. And it was a little bit outside of Florence. So it was a bit of a deal. It's graduation, Dale, come. And see the students performing, you know. So I went out there. And all the students performed. And they all made drinks. And they talked about them. And this was their, this was their graduation. They had to pass this, uh, this, this uh, test, you know. Ah, nice," he said. After now, Mister De Groff is going to take his test. Oh, <laughs> <But> I am. <laughs> I <I'm laughs> put you on the
1: spot. <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> and he put me in the glass. He said, "Okay, Mister De Groff, take away." <laughs>
1: <laughs> what did you do? Uh,
2: I looked over all the spirits on the bar, and I made something up, and I talked <laughs> slowly so that uh, you know Luca could. Uh, Translate the best he could with the help of a couple of English speaking bartenders, and we had a ball. <laughs> that was Luca. Yeah, and he wrote the book uh, in La Traca la Conte, but now it's called On the Trail of the Count, and it's in English, and you can read all about the Negroni in detail. It's wonderful,
3: you know. But isn't that one of the beautiful things about our profession is that you can travel virtually anywhere, and you know, once people know that you work in the bar industry. It's just, you, you're instant friends and through the IBA that I know Dale, you've been involved with as long as I have probably longer, um, that international, the U- United States bartenders guild and that camaraderie that comes along with it. And you can go to, you know, we've, we've been in Spain together, um, Italy together. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, it, it just anywhere you go and you see that IBA flag, uh, you introduce yourself and, uh, instant friends. And, you know, it's there's a that, uh, it is a beautiful That's another thing. thing you did at Vegas. I mean, there was one chapter. Yeah.
2: Those years in Los Angeles. And when I was at Hotel Bel Air, there were no chapters anywhere else in the United States. And you guys really exploded this across the country. It's amazing.
3: Totally well, amazing. I mean, God rest his soul. You know, Jose and Kana, I think is a person that doesn't get the, uh, respect and uh, admiration in this profession here, because I know, you know, we were with him, like I said, in in Italy and together and in Spain and worldwide. I mean, people would kneel and kiss the ring and just, (laughs) I I have so much uh, respect and appreciation for the impact that he had on me personally and uh, on the profession and with keeping the USBG alive here in the United States. Totally.
0: Amazing. Dale, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the Museum of the American Cocktail? That sure,
2: you... sure. It was uh, another one of those, you know, moments. Um, we kept talking about it. My wife and I have all this stuff, you know. I don't know if you can see. i in my office and in the dining room. I got stuff everywhere. And, you know, she was just was just saying, when are we going to get this stuff out of here? You know? <laughs> 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 so I Let's start, start a museum. About, <laughs> you know? And I said, okay, we're going to do it. And there's a guy named Sinjin Frizzell who has a bar in Red Hook, uh, Brooklyn, called Full Defiance. And Sinjin said to me, he was a writer, too, before he was a bar owner, wrote about cocktails and food. And he said to me, you know, I hear you're interested in a museum. Uh, I never thought about New Orleans. So I said, that's one of the cities we were really thinking about. You know, New York's too expensive. And he said, I got just the place for you and I'm gonna put you in touch with the woman who runs the pharmacy museum in the French Quarter. We met her, she loved the idea and she gave us the top two floors. The first two people that Jill and I called after we decided to do this little project was Jared Brown and Anastasia Miller. Anastasia grew up in the booze business and she's brilliant. You know, uh, I think she just got her doctors. In, she did. Uh, chemistry Or something or whatever, I don't know. Uh, Jared was a was a cap was a, 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 a front waiter and a captain in the dining room at the Rainbow Room and went on to become a distiller. Uh, the next person we called was Ted Hay because his collection was even bigger than mine, which was the wrong thing to do because I still have a lot of the stuff that never made it out of the house uh, because it's no. collecting. <laughs> 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 and then I, and Rogers, uh, still Rogers at that point, um, told me it's a guy you need to meet if you're going to start a museum. His name is, is, is uh, Philip Green. And he is the great, great, great grand-nephew of Antoine Peixot. And I said, yes, <laughs> we need to meet that guy. Well, he is now the author of three wonderful books, you know, To Have, and to Have Another, uh, The Manhattan, and now uh, The Drinks of, uh, the, what's it called? Uh, the Movable, movable Drinks, uh, Movable Cocktail or something like that, uh, based off the Movable Feast. Uh, he became an early... Uh, so we, we opened in the, uh, in the pharmacy museum. It was such a great experience. I called up some of the restaurant tours, Like I called T Adelaide Martin who owned Command's Palace. So she had called me earlier, wanted me to do training. So I knew her and she had Adelaide's cafe. And I asked her if she could help us find a caterer because nobody, nobody wanted to work with us. And why? Because we were a nonprofit at the time and we still uh-huh. are and, um, And it got right down to the wire. And I hadn't heard from, I called her a couple of times, nothing back. And I thought, well, you know what we're going to do, guys. I'm going over to Rouse's and I'm going to buy a bunch of chips and dips. And we got lots of really cool cocktails and that's going to be it, you know. So we're we're setting up in the, you know, the New Orleans Orleans buildings has this pass through and then there's this big garden in the back. It used to be where the carriages went in. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where we were having the party in that big space, which was beautiful gardens behind the building that the pharmacy museum was in. And we're setting up and then this truck pulls up out front and these crest cores, four of them start rolling down the alley towards us four chefs in toques and about six waiters. And I'm going, <gasps> oh my God. And there's tea. And I went over and said, tea, tea, we, we can't afford this, can't afford we're it. working on a shoestring here. And she said, oh, don't you worry, this is all going to be part of that welcome and, and hello to the Museum of the American Coffee. <laughs> 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 and I got up when I spoke and I said, I don't know what they got in the water here.
3: I got to tell you. <laughs>
2: this is one wonderful welcome that we got from, you know, the city and the restaurant tours of New Orleans. And that was the beginning. Uh 9 months later, Katrina hit. Mm-hmm. And it was 3 months before we could even get back in the city. Ted and I went in and after going to the to the east side of the city to what was the largest uh U-Haul place to pick up our truck that we had ordered. Well, that was exactly right. It used to be, because it was under four feet of water when we, when we arrived. Uh, it, well, it had been, it wasn't then. So we went to a little gas station on the other side of the front of the uh, uh, Garden District, and that's where U-Haul was operating out of. We picked up our truck. T and her bartender uh, and uh, a couple of other bartenders helped us load the truck And Ted and I started our trip to Las Vegas because T. Adelaide Martin had a commander's palace in the old Aladdin Hotel and Casino. And she gave us the dining room and we built these beautiful, you know, glass enclosed shelves around the whole dining room. You know, we had some money because we had a lot of liquor backing. And uh, that's where we lived for exactly nine months. (laughs) until. Planted Hollywood, <laughs> bought, you know, the,
1: yeah, Orlando
2: hotel, casino. And she said, "Well, uh, I hate to be the one bearing bad news, but somebody made us an offer we can't refuse to move out of this space, and we put it in storage. Uh, and then uh, Liz Williams, who was the director, was the director of Sofab Southern Food and Beverage Museum and Natfab National Association of Food and Beverage." Had run into us earlier and called me up and said, Let's get together. I've got a building. I said, I'm on board. I'm in. <laughs> the Walker Marketplace, where we stayed for seven years, paying no rent, only utilities, because they wanted, it. They wanted to bring pack people back to that, to that long shotgun mall that went from Canal Street all the way to Julia Street. Uh, and it was a great experience. And we had a huge space, and it was, we grew, and they grew. And uh, now we have our own building out there. It used to be the fruit and vegetable market of the city of New Orleans. Two buildings across from each other uh, at the corner of Aretha Castle, Haley, and Martin Luther King Boulevards, two outstanding uh, people of color who are celebrated in that neighborhood. And uh, the building across the street from us, and by the way, these are giant kind of buildings because they were vegetable markets. And we kept that format in ours, but the one across the street was turned into the... Museum. I mean, the, uh, the the jazz museum and, and performance center, uh, and they had some problems with money. They're still there. They're still doing stuff, but they're they're struggling a little bit. Uh, and that's the story of the Museum of the American Cocktail, right up to date. I'm still a member of the board, and uh, we are still there uh, and uh, trying to make it through COVID like everybody else. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Even though
2: we own the building. On,
0: yep. We will visit when we go back to New Orleans. Right, Bridget?
1: You. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, you got it. You know, um, Tony and Dale, you're both, I mean, icons in this industry and your stories will um, be in our history books, you know, forever. They really will be what you've done is beyond a movement. It's beyond individual even your individual self you literally changed our industry for the better both done so much, so many good things for all of us for myself included i know i wouldn't be sitting here today with this mic if it wasn't for the two of you really putting down that path and i know it wasn't easy and i want, just want to just tell you both i appreciate it um me personally so much all that you do for our industry and what i would love to know from the both of you, from each of you is, what do you want our history books to say about your legacy?
2: Well, that's a tough one, Tony, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, I, I'd be happy with a footnote that said, uh, I was the person who made it okay to be a bartender again.
3: <laughs> that would be a great honor, indeed. Uh, I think, you know, Helen, Helen said it best, you know, be, be remembered for what you left behind. Totally, yeah. Well,
1: mm-hmm. so I want to thank you both for being on the show today. I hope that you will come back. I'm really excited, Dale, about your new book, um, The Craft of the Cocktail. I encourage all of our listeners to go thank out and, and to grab it. And to definitely go out and grab Tony's books, The Modern Mixologist, and Vodka Distilled. And if you're not a fan of vodka, that's okay. After you read the book, you <laughs> will be. <laughs> you will be. That's what that book does to you, right, Tony? Makes you not mad at it anymore. So Don't I
3: be wanted, mad at vodka. <laughs>
0: don't
1: be mad. It didn't do anything to you.
3: Didn't yeah.
1: You? And definitely check out their bitters and make sure that you visit uh, modernmixologist.com if you would like to check out some really beautiful um, bar tools that Tony um, makes and designs and styles. So I want to thank you both from the bottom of my heart for being on this show. And I wish you both um, health, peace, and um, of course, happiness uh, during this time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank
0: you guys so much. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!